and welcome to the second part of our episode with Pat Poles, SVP Engineering at Sneak. Let's continue. So in, in other cases where you want something to happen and you want to make a change in, in an engineering organizations, you know, engineers can, you know, resist change like other human beings. Um, what, what, what kind of advice would you give an engineering manager that wants to get a team on board with a new procedure or initiative and, you know, meets that kind of pushback? Yeah. So getting people used to change is something that, that takes time and, uh, you need to be careful and thoughtful about how you do that. So I think, you know, it's, it's important to think about things like, uh, when you're, when you're communicating change, you need to over communicate because when you say, you think you said something and you think that you were clear about a thing, well, actually not everybody was there in that moment and not everybody was paying attention. Some people were, you know, drinking coffee and surfing slack and doing other stuff and didn't necessarily hear in, in the same way that everyone else did. And so often you have to be able to communicate those changes in a lot of different places at a lot of different times. But also I think it's super important to realize that people can digest change at the, at the rate that they can digest. So you have to build it as a muscle, just like you build anything else. And so that means, you know, if you, you can overwhelm people, you can give them too many changes in too short a time period, and you can create a, you know, a feeling of like, this is too much and it's, it's overload. So you need to be very cognizant of like how often big changes are happening. And have we really kind of grokked and swallowed and started to execute against one before we hit the team with another one? Uh, and I fall, I still fall into that trap sometimes of, you know, we, we, we publish too many changes too, too close together. Um, and I think over communication and then kind of, you know, understanding how to build that muscle. Then when you get to places where you have a thing that you really need to do, you kind of have a playbook for how you do it. You kind of have a good way to, to understand how much change the team undergone so far. Um, and, and I think you also, uh, if, if you've built that up as a muscle and you've, you've kind of, you've treated it as something that happens periodically, people get used to that. So it's not all that daunting when you have something that even is a, is a big change when they're used to seeing change happen relatively frequently in a certain way. And this is a consistent thing that has happened kind of every so often. Uh, it, it's a bit more easy to swallow and to react. To. Okay. So uh, I, I want to uh, switch to another thing that's very interesting to us. Um, and that is knowledge silos. Uh, so, this is a natural side effect of growing and maturing software teams, right? You get these knowledge silos. Um, and sometimes I guess you see them as a good thing, but a lot of times they become bad, um, particularly over time. And I, I wanted to ask, have you been able to break down these silos uh, ever? Um, is, is there, are there, were there silos that you intentionally did not want to break? Yeah. Well, it's a, I think this is a balance too. You know, you want teams to have autonomy. You want them to be able to, you know, kind of understand where they need to go, give them enough high level context of what the outcomes of business wants, and then let them run in, in the direction that they want to run. But at the same time, that context does need to be there and you have to make sure people can, can get that context. Uh, but the, the difficult thing about being autonomous and being your own team, being very kind of self-dependent, is that you can get to a place where, uh, you know, if, if it's, if you allow it to happen, you get to a place where it's like, it's us against the world. You know, we're all in the foxhole together and we're the ones who are doing this thing. And, and I, you know, and it's, it's great for having that strong bond between the team members, but it creates sometimes challenges with being able to have any sort of communication out or, 
the connection you need whenever you want to do things that are actually across the team. Uh, and I've seen this in in variety of different teams over the course of my career in different places. I think there's you know there are strategies for how to break that down, but I I think it's important not to just let that happen. You know, like when you see it, when you see places where that kind of bunker mentality exists in a certain team, uh, the, there's there can be some really big challenges with that. And you mentioned it; it's about it's about the information. If you get to a place where the communication is not happening out and across the different teams, then the things that that team knows are they're going to die with them. Uh, and that's not a that's not a great place to be. So um, I think it, it's something from a leadership perspective you have to try and help make sure that you're identifying where there's places where there isn't healthy communication happening across. And then for us, you know, right now as a as a company that's been growing very quickly, started off as a very as a, a lot of small autonomous teams, a few, then many, you know, kind of growing over over time. We've had to find connected tissue. We had to find ways to be able to do it via structure via uh, some some people who work as architects in the company where they're embedded inside the, the different structural units, but they are in specific very, very much connecting with everyone else uh, and ensuring that that whole picture exists. And it's, you know, it's, uh, there isn't one answer to it, but I do think it's important to, to be observing and watching. And when, when it starts to feel like there is a bunker mentality happening in a team that you, you can try to do what you can to, uh, to fix that, address it. So I, I was about to ask, it, it seems to me, uh, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe the, the intuition is wrong, that rather than trying to go head, head to head with someone who's in that bunker mentality, changing the structure uh, while you know having its own challenges might be easier to, to change the communication patterns. Would you say that's true? I would. I would. And I think that's one of those things, you know, you, completely shaking up structure can be really jarring. but uh, fairly continually tweaking the structure, you know, like let's say once a year, company looks at their priorities. What are the things they're really trying to get done? Okay, let's examine if we're structured right to do the things that you need to do against those priorities and making small changes, changes that even the, the R&D teams can participate in. Like I'm a big fan of once you know what kind of changes you want to make, going back to the team and saying, all right, this is what it looks like. This is how we're going to be structured for next year. You're doing great in your area. You're, you're killing it in this, this team that you've been in for two or three years. Do you want to stay there or do you want to move to a different area and learn something different? And you'll find that the big majority of the time, people will elect to stay where they are. They, you know, the engineers, they like the rest of their team. They like their problem set. They're learning a lot. They're become, getting some expertise. They like their PM, whatever. Uh, but, you know, some percentage, 10, 15% are going to say, yeah, I've been doing this for a while and I'd love to. That thing over there looks really interesting. I'd like to do that. And I think that creates uh, an environment where people are all participating in it together and it doesn't feel like it's happening to them as much, but they're a part of it. Um, and so those are some of the ways that you try to help break down those those silos that might get created because you periodically are saying, we're going to give you an opportunity to do something a bit different anyways. And it you'd like to see a little bit of movement. 10, 15% of the team moving to different things is super healthy. Okay. 10, 15%. Uh, that's a good, good number. Um, okay. Um, the, the last uh, issue I wanted to ask you about is about uh, grooming uh, mid-management. And uh, some of your direct reports became software managers and leaders. And I, I wanted to ask what companies should focus on or what managers and similar roles to yours should focus on when grooming developers to become excellent managers. Because you can have an awesome developer that is either really unequipped, or on a personal level, shouldn't be a manager, right? So 
and it's not trivial to, to, to think about a certain person as a developer and think about how to groom them to be a manager. So how do you, how do you go about doing that? Well, one thing that's really good to be aware of and to communicate and talk about like openly with people who are thinking about these kind of moves is that it's not, you know, the thing that made you successful up to where you are today isn't necessarily what's going to make you successful tomorrow. And, and I'm, I'm definitely, you know, living proof that, that a, a person who believes that you can just do the exact same thing and be successful as a manager. <clears throat> like I did it really, really badly for a couple of years when, when I was a ticket master and first made that move from being, um, you know, someone who was coding all the time to, uh, to someone who was managing people. I didn't do it well at all. And, you know, I think just knowledge from the, the person who's in that role, who's going to be moving into that role, that there are things to learn and that you're not going to just keep on doing exactly what you were doing, but now you're deciding what people are paid. And that's the only difference there is to management. Like it's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. And so you want people who have, uh, you know, who have a, a learning, you know, and a growth mindset. And they want to, they want to learn how to do it well. They want to kind of, um, you know, soak up everything they can from people, from a mentorship perspective, from a, you know, kind of observation, um, perspective. You want, you want people who are willing to, to do that. Uh, and I think from a, from a company perspective, when you're thinking, okay, we've got a, our company's growing. We need another leader, another manager in this, this place. And here's a person who's a great engineer who we think could do it. You need to realize that there's an investment you have to make there because that person isn't going to just inherently be an observation, you know, know everything they need to know. It's like saying, I know how to drive a car because I rode in a car one time and I watched somebody else drive the car. You, you, you need to know more than that. And, uh, and I think that companies can do a lot provide mentorship um, mentorship opportunities in, in, in all kinds of different ways and coaching and, and learning one of the examples I give people around the importance of this when when I took the role at Eventbrite uh, when I had the VP of engineering role one of the first kind of huge benefits that I got was the CEO at the time Kevin Hartz um, with close connection with Sequoia and he set me up with a year of once a month meetings with Bill Corrin so Bill was the SVP of engineering at Google for a long time. The whole organization reported up through him on the engineering side. And once a month for an hour, I got to be in a room alone with Bill, you know, at a whiteboard saying, here are things that we're thinking about. Here are our challenges. What do you think? And, and getting Bill's opinions, you know, and, and him forcing me to give my opinions first, which was always awesome. But uh, it was it was just great to have someone who'd been, you know, as I talk about the kind of uh, the, the potholes in the road. He'd been over so many of those things. So I could talk to him about things like, what do you think is better, a greenfield development or refactoring things? And we could talk and have like long, deep conversations about the things he'd learned over the course of his career about that particular subject. And I think that, that providing opportunities for people to see uh, what it is to work at the next level, what it is to do the next type of, of leadership and then uh, letting them ask questions and getting that direct mentorship is a is one of the ways that companies can do that. But I do think it's it's important. You're not just going to have people translate into, well, they were a good engineer, so they're going to be a really good engineering manager as well. Okay, that's uh, that's great advice. Uh, also for the VCs who might be listening to us. Um, great. Um, so, Pat, that's all the time uh, uh, we have for today. And thank you very much again for coming on. Absolutely, Tom. Really enjoyed it. Thank you everyone for tuning in and I hope you join us for our next episode. To find additional episodes and full transcripts, or if you'd like to be a guest on our show, find us on our community page at swim with a double m.io. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.